If you were asked which New Testament book was written in the explicit form of the Talmud, would you know the answer? Welcome to Episode 20 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher, Dr. George Byron Koch. Back into our discussion today, where we're talking about the law and how it affects us and the way we live today. Let's get to it. Here's George. Last time we began to look at the Talmud. This is a book of commentaries on the scriptures by Jewish sages over the ages. It actually dates back in the oral tradition to perhaps two or 300 BC, according to even others, back to the time of the reception by Moses of the Ten Commandments on Sinai, 1350 BC. And this Talmud is a form of argument and debate to unpack and understand the law of Moses, the rough equivalent, if you would, of opinions rendered by Supreme Court justices on the Constitution of the United States when there is an issue of interpretation of law. And so we're going to begin to look now at the Talmud and its relationship to the New Testament, particularly Jesus, Paul, and the Jewish authors of the New Testament were trained in Talmudic debate. Paul especially was a disciple of Rabban Gamaliel, the elder and his school, and any argument that Paul would make, whether for the Messiahship of Jesus or about the law of Moses, would be formed in the manner of Talmudic debate. This is important because the book of Romans, written by Paul, explicitly follows this structure. And disregarding this form of presentation and argument can lead to fatal misunderstandings about what Paul is trying to say. Even Paul's remark that the law was a tutor until Messiah came, well, that would be regarded as a simple truism, not a revolutionary insight. Note that in Hebrew, a student is a Talmud, and the Talmud, same Hebrew root, means instruction. The root in Hebrew means teach or study. Of course the law is our tutor, and the law is fulfilled when the Messiah comes. This would be simple logic for any student of the Talmud. In some circles, Christian authors have depicted Paul as the liberated Jew who is now crossing swords with the trapped Jews still foolishly bound by the law. While Paul did debate and contest the opinions of other Jews, he did so as a Jew with Jews within a Jewish oral law tradition. Even when arguing about Gentiles coming under God's grace, he was making his case to Jews in Jewish language, forms, scripture, hermeneutics, exegesis, and logic. He was arguing the way Jews of the day argued in the forms and structures they argued in order to make his case to other Jews. And further, even the opinions he expressed were not new interpretations. They were already well within the relatively diverse scope of Jewish thought at that time, what's called Second Temple Jewish thought. It is during the Second Temple period that Jesus and Paul lived and in which the New Testament was written and the Christian church was born. The claims Paul made about Messiah and the fulfillment of the law were not new. 
but were already known and believed by many Second Temple Jews. Paul was just saying, in effect, remember what Tanakh says about Messiah? Now it has come true. He's here. It's Jesus, or Yahushua in Hebrew. Paul never quoted the New Testament in making his case, because it didn't exist. It was in the process of being written. Paul quoted Scripture only from the Old Testament in making his argument that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And he made his case in the classic principles through which Torah is expounded. It was used by the rabbis of his day, and it's captured and known well even today in the Talmud. Key phrases in the book of Romans come right from this pattern. What shall we then say is a Talmudic argument form. May it never be is a Talmudic argument form. God forbid is yet another. And the overall structure of his presentation and logic follow this pattern. If you go into a modern yeshiva, a Jewish seminary, you will see men carefully studying Torah and Talmud, sometimes alone, but often in pairs. The pairs are called haverim, or friends. They read together and debate deep, long, rigorously. They ask and challenge each other point by point. They agree and disagree. You will hear commonly the question, what does it say? How do you read it? Even today, this is heard. Now, does this quote sound familiar? It should. Listen to Luke 10. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. Any yeshiva student would instantly recognize the form of this exchange, and especially the question, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The question jumps out as a classic form of rabbinic questioning, and of the contesting questions to which the rabbis put their students, and the students put each other. The foundational assumption in yeshiva is that debate, contest, rigor, logic, debate, debate, debate over the Torah and its meaning and its application, that opens up a space for the Spirit of God to enter in and to reveal His truth. And further, It's not even expected that one must win and the other lose the argument. At the end, two or more opinions can stand side by side, with both respected. Imagine that. And those who wrestled with Talmud and each other, they still remain friends. Havarim. God's will for a given issue is understood to be discoverable, but also sometimes beyond just one result. Christian theology, on the other hand, largely deems side-by-side resolution impossible. 
One must be right and the other wrong. Somehow God could not possibly allow both. For example, baptism must be only for adults or it is acceptable for children. The bread and wine are Jesus or they are merely a remembrance of him and so on. Denominations have arisen primarily because disagreement led to division and disfellowship. Frankly, the rabbinic way of the yeshiva is healthier. Now, this doesn't mean there are no issues of Christian doctrine that are, in effect, non-negotiable. The Talmud, too, has opinions where there is just one final ruling. But Christians, we Christians have a terrible record of insisting on winners and losers, that one is right and the other wrong, of dismissing and then shunning or even harming each other over opinions that should have simply been left standing side by side, adjacent, with equal respect, and that with continued debate and no rancor or personal attack might even have made space for the Spirit of God to enter in. Whereas the yeshiva fosters ongoing debate and growth of understanding, we Christians find it tiresome and would rather just separate from those who don't agree with us. That, at least, has largely been our history so far. I pray for a reformation that brings us together, respecting each other even when we might not agree, rather than dividing yet again, because I am right and you, if you disagree, are wrong. One final point as we're looking at Old Testament versus New Testament. The New Testament is not a replacement for the Old. If anything, it is more rightly seen as midrash, commentary, using the passages of the Old Testament to show how the law is fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus, and how God reaches out to the Gentiles through him. Since the early centuries after the life of Jesus, much of Christian theology has been focused on showing how different it is from Judaism. But the methods used to construct this argument are largely within the confines of Greek philosophical structures, not Jewish thought. Thus, distinctions claimed of Christianity from Jewish thought are illusory. They're manufactured, the product of Greek-style thinking by Gentiles, rather than true distinctions discovered in the text of the New Testament. Paul's claims about law and grace, covenant and Messiah, were not innovations, did not depart from existing streams of Jewish thought, debate, and belief. The distinction wasn't what was believed about the coming Messiah. Many already believed such things. The distinction was the proclamation that the Messiah had arrived and his name was Jesus. And so we will turn next to Jesus and the covenant he proclaimed. What a powerful picture, the yeshiva, where interpretation leads to debate and room for the spirit to work as opposed to division and loss of unity. A fascinating look into Hebrew scholarship. Our discussion of covenant continues after this short break. Stay with us. <laughs> 